This morning, I want to pick up uh, in more detail something we've let go, and that is the, uh, I'd like to talk to you about the kingdom of Christ again, as it relates to Jesus Christ in the Gospels. I would love to go through every verse in the Gospels. There's nothing richer than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John about Jesus Christ, but that would take longer than I'm going to be alive. So I'm going to kind of jump over it a little bit and uh, give you highlights. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the kingdom of Christ in jeopardy. Jesus Christ came to this earth to be the king, not only our Savior and Lord, but also to be the king of the earth. You see, when God created the earth, he created it that man would live in the garden, expand the garden, and man would have a wonderful time on earth enjoying God's creation. As it is, man sinned, and as a result, the whole world was thrown into chaos, and Satan took over the role of Adam and Eve, of Adam specifically, in that he became the king of the earth. So the king of the earth today, the god of this age, the prince and power of the world today is Satan. So you wonder why the whole world's in a mess? It's because Satan is ruling. And not only that, but he has a whole population of human beings that are depraved. A whole group of human beings that in their heart are enemies of God. And if God did not intervene and call the people to his name before the foundation of the world, no one would come. We're only who we are by the grace of God. And you stop and think about it. What major decision have you ever made anyway? When did you, whoever decided at what period of time you'd be born and to whom your parents would be? All of that was arranged and prearranged before you ever were a twinkle in anybody's eye. And so God then, as they sinned, God threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. No one except Adam and Eve have ever seen what God intended when he created this world. No one. And so God is going to restore this world, but he has to do it through a king other than Satan. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to be that king. And he promised redemption through him as early as Genesis chapter 3.15. God then created man and let him live by his own intuition. There were no laws. There was no Bible. There was only the conscience of men. And in 1,600 plus years, man became so corrupt that God destroyed every air-breathing animal and every human being except Noah and his wife, and his three sons and their wives in an ark. And for over a year, the world was underwater. The world was suffering from being underwater. Destruction was everywhere. Nothing was left the same. When, Adam, when Noah left the land, he saw trees and everything. And when he came out of the ark, there was nothing. It was all brand new and starting all over. And there was climate and everything else. 
Then God took a family and then said, I'm going to take a family and I'm going to show the world what it will be like through this family. They will rule the world. So he chose Abraham and he made an unconditional covenant to Abraham and he said, I will make you a great nation. The nation ended up after his sons, Isaac and uh, his son, Jacob. The nation ended up not in Palestine, but the nation ended up in Egypt and uh, for 400 years. Think of that. Think of that. That's a long time. For the nation of Israel to be held captive in Egypt for 400 years. And so God took them out through Moses and brought them into the Sinai Desert and made them a nation. And they, be, they were to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, Israel was to be a missionary to the world. How great it could be. How wonderful it could be. There would be peace in the world through the nation of Israel as Jesus would be their king. And he promised them a king. The result of it was God chose finally a king, David. And David was a man after God's own heart. And David had a, a son, Solomon, through an illegitimate relationship with Bathsheba. And Solomon became the second king. And he couldn't handle the wealth. He couldn't handle the power. And after he was done, the nation split. Finally, the nation became so degenerate that God said, I'm taking them and I'm going to make them captive. They're going to get rid of idols. They were totally full of idolatry. And so God said, you're going to be captive for 70 years. And God carted them off, the southern nation, Judah. God carted them off to Babylon. And you know what? We've never had a problem with idolatry in Israel after that. Up till then, idols were everywhere. The world didn't, wasn't cured of it, but Israel was. Then after 70 years, Cyrus, uh, who was chosen 250 years before he even came on the scene, Cyrus, God said, a king's going to be raised by the name of Cyrus. He's going to let a remnant of Israel go back, children of Israel go back and reorder a nation. They did. They came back. They had a revival that lasted for a short time. Then 400 years later, they were again under the control of Rome. Uh, they were religious but self-righteous in every way. The religion was external for the most part. It was not heaven-bound. Then suddenly, God broke the silence. And he said to Zachariah and Elizabeth, you're going to have a son. You're going to call him named John. And he's going to be born, and he's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. Three months later, an angel came to, to Mary and said, you're going to have a son. She's not even married at this point. She's engaged, in essence. She's betrothed. And he said, you're going to have a son. And he's going to be born of a virgin. He's not going to have an earthly father. He's going to be born of a virgin, and he is going to be the king. He's going to be the promised king of Israel. You know the story. Um, John the Baptist came and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, which is equivalent to the same words, kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, all three are synonymous. You're going to have a kingdom, and the king is here. Repent, for the kingdom is near. 
kingdom is at hand. And Jesus came following, and he was baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice came out of heaven, and it said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus began his ministry. We talked about his temptations. Jesus faced all the temptations that you and I face without sin. Perfect. And the Bible tells us that Jesus laid aside the independent use of his attributes. You can read that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. He laid aside all that. He lived as a man. As we told a Sunday school class this morning, when you stop and think about it in the Trinity, <clears throat> Jesus is the most unique person in the Trinity in that he is not only God, he is a man in human flesh. And he lived as a man on this earth, totally dependent upon God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Every move he made, he was dependent upon the will of God. The Sermon on the Mount that he preached that we just went through the last month or so, the Sermon on the Mount was Christ's spiritual constitution of how the kingdom will run, basically. And it applies to us. If you're born again, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, guess what? You're going to be in that kingdom. You're not going to be in that kingdom in the bodies we now have, thank God. We'll be in that kingdom in our glorified human bodies, ruling and reign with Christ. You and I will see how the world should have looked. You want to go see the Rockies? Go see them now because they won't be there in the kingdom. The Rockies are nothing more than a scar left by the destruction of the flood uh, 7,000 years ago or so. That's interesting, isn't it? Grand Canyon, same way. But it will, if God can take, as I told the class this morning, if God can take a destructive world and its results and make it beautiful, then what can God do when he wants to really re refurbish it? What do you think that's going to look like? We haven't seen anything yet. We haven't seen any beauty yet. We haven't seen a world where there is no war. We haven't seen a world where there is no racial problem. We haven't seen any world where there is corruption. But it's going to happen. And for 1,000 years, Revelation 20, for 1,000 years, Christ will rule. No war, no disease. Everybody, kids will play in the streets. There'll be feasts and banquets. It'll be as God intended it to be. No one will enter that kingdom unless they are truly born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, he answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you want to see that kingdom, you've got to be born again. Otherwise, uh, this is the best it gets for you. It only gets worse from here. Now, let's take a look at the rejection of Christ. Not only did Christ come as king, but he was rejected as Christ. And he gave us the spiritual features of the kingdom, what men should live like as a result of their being born again, what they should live like on this earth. And we see the necessity, saw the necessity of true faith last Sunday morning. 
You can, you know, you're not saved because you say you're saved. You, you, you can say you're sa saved, but not be saved. You can say you're a Christian and really not be a Christian. How do I know you're a Christian? How do I know you're truly born again? How does anybody know? It's a life you live. James says, you say you have faith, show me your faith. And James says, I'll show you my faith by my what? Works. You're not saved by works. Nobody is saved by works. But works prove my faith. I am what I think. You are what you think. You are what you really think, and it shows. If you don't think there's a God, you don't live like there's one. If you don't think there's a, uh, any God at all or anything like that, you don't live like that. You only live like what you think. If you're a materialist, you live totally materialistic. Everything is materialistic. Money is everything. Fame is everything. Power is everything. And, and we see that all over the world. Why else would a person want to be a president and have all that stuff? Sometimes I think just being in a ministry and putting up with the ministry at times pretty bad till I look at a coach then I'm kind of glad I'm in the ministry because everybody who's a fan knows better than the coach sitting on the bench how the team ought to be run. Ever been there? Everybody's complaining about the coach. Or the last thing I'd want to be is a ref or an umpire. Okay, after the Sermon on the Mount, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, and we'll work our way through this because I want to bring you to the point of rejection of Israel. Matthew chapter 8, a lot of scripture this morning that I'll be reading. Matthew 8, 5 to 9. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, some of you here this morning know exactly where Capernaum is. And you can see it in your mind on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. A centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. The centurion, by the way, is a, is a Gentile. And the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man of authority, under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes unto another, come, and he comes unto my slave, do this, and he does it. And then Jesus says, basically, uh, he has not found this kind of faith in all of Jerusalem, in all of Israel. This man understood the word of Christ. Christ could say the word and it would come. He would come. And in fact, he says there will be a lavish uh, feast for him. And, when, and uh, when the Jews heard this, look at verse 10. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I've not found great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west, recline at the table with me, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when? What's the next word? Kingdom of heaven, which is still future. But the sons of the kingdom, that's Israel, will be cast out into utter darkness in that place, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed 
at that very moment. Gentiles are going to be in this. Now, a couple of our people went to Israel here last couple of weeks, and they came back. And you know what? Israel, you can't witness of Jesus Christ to anybody. It's against the law. They're enemies of the cross. The land where Jesus walked, the land where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wanted to have as their own, the land where David was king, where Elijah and Elisha, where Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these prophets were, this land as a nation is an enemy of God. Sad, isn't it? And their rejection comes in the book of Matthew. They killed the king that came. And fortunately, the greatest sin done in the world becomes the greatest act for all of us for our salvation and for our eternal home. In Isaiah 25, 6, we read about this. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. We're going to be in a feast, if you know the Lord, in the land of Palestine, sitting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think of it. We're going to be there. Physically enjoying it. Jesus is expecting the nation of Israel who were the promise to the kingdom of heaven, for the most part, actually to reject his kingdom. He knew that. Notice the responses of the cities to the king. They were evangelized by the twelve. Turn with me to a couple more chapters, to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Well, that's interesting. In the kingdom that Jesus will rule, there'll be no demon possession. There'll be no demons around. Nobody can say the devil made me do it. The devil and his demons are chained in the abyss. And there'll be no diseases. If you're a physician, you don't have nothing to do in the, in the millennium. As a preacher, I'll have nothing to do either. They'll all be, uh, they don't need somebody to teach them. They'll know. Now, here's what he tells them at verse 5, Matthew 10, 5. The 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go anywhere but to the Jews. This message is to Israel, Jews only, period. They're the ones who are to receive the kingdom. They're the ones through whom Christ is to rule. And look what he tells them and the power he gives them, the twelve. Notice Judas is with them. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, 
Cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. In other words, they have all the power that God gave Jesus. Jesus gave to them to represent him. And he said, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or staff. The worker is worthy of his support. You go with nothing, they'll provide you. And he says, whatever village, verse 11, you enter, inquire who is worthy and stay in his house until you leave. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing and peace. If they say, you're not, we don't want you, then take back your blessing. Well, now I'm going to bless you. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house, that city, shake the dust off your feet. What does that mean? Judgment is coming. You don't even want the dust of that city on your shoes because it's going to be judged. There's, some, there's a lesson here, a, a hidden lesson, maybe not much hidden. When you witness of Jesus Christ to somebody and they say, it's nonsense, I don't really care to hear this, uh, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord. You represent the Lord when you witness. And they say, go jump in a lake. Uh, that's not your responsibility. Uh, God takes care of that because you are a personal ambassador. You are a personal representative of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of times, one of the things we have a hard time in witnessing is when I say something about the Lord and they say we're not interested or they don't want to hear about it, we take it personally. We, we think we're a failure. Well, if that's the case, what do you think about Noah? For 120 years, he witnessed, and nobody ever accepted it witness. We don't need to take that personally. We can pray and ask God for us to be tactful, and we can pray for and ask God for ways to be creative in presenting the message. But finally, we have to pre we present a message that the world doesn't like. They don't like the idea that somebody has to die for them because they're a sinner and they need a savior. They don't like that message. Our message is not popular. But we're to give it. And God will honor it as we give it. So the message went out. Look at the respond in chapter 11. Look at the respond of the message in chapter 11. What happened? Matthew 11, verse 20 and 24. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities in which most of the miracles were done. Why? Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Okay, you Israel visitors. What did you see at Capernaum? Ruins. Ruins. You know what? Capernaum's on the north side of a very beautiful lake. 
You want to build a house on a lakeside and you want to have a nice sight out of your bay window and sit on your porch and look at a lake that's eight miles wide and 12 miles long, the Sea of Galilee, you can do it there. But there's nothing there. Jesus cursed the cities to which those 12 went and they rejected the message. And they're not, we know where they are. We know where Bethsaida is. I had a secretary one time that was having a baby and going to have a baby and she wanted it a biblical name and she said, well, we want to call our baby Bethsaida. And I said, do you know what that word means? She said, no. It means a house of fish. <laughs> she changed her mind. <laughs> well, maybe you want to check out, if you're going to name your baby a biblical name, check out the name before you uh, put it to it. Miracles and signs were given to the people in order that they may know Messiah when he came. How do you know he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Have you ever seen anybody walk up to a person that has leprosy or cancer and they just say, you're healed, and it's over? You ever seen a man that's been dead four days and Jesus walks up and says, Lazarus, arise, and he rises? Have you ever seen anybody feed 5,000 men plus women and children from five loaves and two fishes? And do it again with 4,000? Nobody's seen those kind of miracles. They can't even fake them on TV. They try, but they can't fake them. I, I you know, I have one arm shorter than the other. Be healed. That's about the extent of it, folks. I want to see somebody take an ear lying on the ground, pick it up and stick it on. Don't you? I want to see a real bona fide person, a paralytic, hear the words, rise, take up your bed, and walk. That's what happened in the days of Jesus. These miracles were to show the people that he is the king. The apostle John reminds us of Christ's miracles in John 20, verses 30 to 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are written in this book. But these have been written that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. That's why the miracles were there, for people to believe. This is not just an ordinary prophet. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of Man. Well, let's take a look at the exposure of the leader's hearts in Israel. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 9 and following. Matthew 12, verse 9 to 14. Departing from there, he, Jesus, went into their synagogue. And a man whose heart, hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They asked this question so they might accuse him. And he said to them, what, is, what man is there among you who has a sheep? 
And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take it and hold it out? What's the answer? Yeah, he would. If you have a cow that falls in a ditch and a cow is your living, you have the right on the Sabbath, even though the law says you are not to work, you have a right to take that cow and pull him out of the ditch. What's wrong with that? Nothing. So Jesus said, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? Well, that was a valid question then. The question now is, how much more value is a man than, than a dog? You'd, you, you would wonder. Have you seen that advertisement that the poor dogs are dying? And you can send $11 a month and save these dogs? Whatever happened to euthanizing dogs? Why put them in their misery? If you're, going, as a Christian, rearing a dog and you want a dog, then treat the dog sanely or the cattle rightly. Isn't that what the Bible says? We're not to be cruel to animals. But you have to remember that a dog does not have a soul. And if you think your dog's going to be in heaven, you're missing the boat. Enjoy him now. Because he isn't going to be in heaven. Not your little pup isn't going with you. They don't even know they're alive, folks. <clears throat> the only people who know they're alive are angels and human beings. We know we're alive. That's part of being human. Animals for, were given by God and the kingdom will enjoy them. A lion will lie down with a calf, a bear with a calf. You know that passage. Lion with sheep and everything. And your children, the children in the kingdom will play on the hole of a cobra. Not be bit. By the way, the reign of tooth and claw that was instituted in the Garden of Eden because of man's sin, the reign and tooth and claw will be lifted. The wild carnivorous animals will eat straw like an ox. They'll become verbivorous, whatever the word is. Vegetarian, I guess, is the word. They'll eat straw like an ox. That's going to be lifted. And I'll be glad for that, won't you? I, I enjoy animals. And I enjoy uh, watching them. And I enjoy the various kinds of animals and the variety that God made them. Can you imagine uh, how well, God made a hippopotamus and uh, a giraffe? Isn't that an interesting animal? It's a duck-billed platypus that's found in Australia. Uh, when they sent, when the explorers in Australia found the duck-billed platypus, uh, they sent it back to England to figure out what it was. And the biologists in England thought, they had put it together and uh, such strange animals that we have each one unique representing the glory of God and created for the glory of God and our enjoyment great you can hunt uh, you know don't be crazy about it but you can hunt there's nothing wrong with that because we can have our pop you know you should have been here Wednesday night in a Bible study we had a a shrew, you know what a shrew is? Looks like a mouse came running in here and 
Big men stood on chairs. <laughs> running around in here. If you see one now, uh, just sit and pretend you didn't see it. It's a shrew of all things, not even a mouse. Yeah, you can look it up in the dictionary. But the exposure of the uh, heart was, the Pharisees, look what he said. In Matthew 12, verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. I like Christ. He knows there's opposition there. And Jesus could have said, sir, you got a bad hand, I'll tell you why. I'll meet you after church. I'll meet you in my office. And rather than cause a stink, we'll just wait. And so they're all sitting there. Is he going to do stretch his hand? And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. He stretches out his hand, and guess what? It's healed perfectly. And the people plotted, hey, he's the king. Look at the next verse. The next verse was, they went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Can you imagine that? If you had a withered hand, it was absolutely useless to you. You couldn't move it. And when you looked at it, it was nothing but skin over bones. And it was made whole by one saying, wouldn't you be happy for your brother? They went out and decided to kill him. Now they bring an accusation against Christ. Matthew records another miracle which reveals the depth of the wickedness and sinfulness of the leader's hostilities. Turn to Matthew 12, 12. Matthew 12, 12. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. Can you imagine anything more worse than that? Can't hear, can't speak, and can't see. What is there to life? Now, the question of the people to the leaders was, the crowd's, were the people of the land and ordinary citizens and their attitude to the people in general is described in the previous chapter. Just going back one chapter, it says this. Jesus says to this generation in Matthew chapter 11, verse 16, what do I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who called to the children and said, we played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. We can't do anything to please you. Sometimes church leaders feel that way. How can you please them? If you say this, they want this. If they say that, they want this. He said, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said about John the Baptist, he has a demon. However, when the Son of Man came eating and drinking, they say, behold, he's gluttonous and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So they say of John the Baptist, he was a, uh, a loner. 
He is demon-possessed. Jesus, on the other hand, is a gluttonous and a drunkard. Uh, he didn't please the crowd. Mark 30 puts it this way. It's on the board. You don't have to turn to it. He came home, and the crowd gathered against him. This is Jesus. To such an extent that he could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they said, he has lost his senses. That's what his own family. Guy's insane. This is not an ordinary person. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem then were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out demons by the rulers of demons. This is what the people, the leaders are saying about Jesus. His own people, his family, were saying, our, our, our older son, our older brother has gone insane. And the crowd is saying, the leaders are saying, he is casting out demons by the devil. Now I'll go back to chapter 12, verse 23. Matthew 12, 23 to 24. When after the demon man who was blind, mute, was healed, the people asked the question. They're amazed. And they were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? He surely isn't David's son, the future king. They're doubting it. Well, here they get the answer from the Pharisees, the leader of the Jews. The Pharisees heard this. They said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Luke has a note in chapter 7, verse 30, he says, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. What, you know what they're saying? Jesus is in cahoots with the devil. He's the son of the devil. Uh, how much, how, how, how far, how far can you reject Jesus Christ than that? What would be a worse way to say Jesus Christ is not who he is, but to say he is the devil or working with the devil himself? Now, the demons are popping out all over where Jesus goes, right? They're popping out because this world is king, the kingdom of Satan. And the king of the future world is coming to this world, and they are fighting him at every step. How many cases of demon possession do you read about in the Old Testament? None. Satan was there, but I don't see any demon possession everywhere. I'm sure it was to some degree, but we don't see it anywhere. But suddenly when Jesus comes, they're popping out all over because here is the king of the final kingdom on this earth. And here is the devil who's in charge right now presently. And here comes the king of kings. And so suddenly all his imps and his demons are coming out and thwarting Jesus Christ. They know who he is. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says this in verse 25, 32. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself 
is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? It's illogical to say I'm in cahoots with the devil. It's illogical to say I'm in a pact with the devil. Why? Any house or nation divided against itself will not stand, right? If you and your wife don't get along, uh, your house is in danger of falling apart. You need to sit down and make sure you get a, your adults, sit down, work it out with the Lord, work it out together and get your house back in order. And men, you're 51% in this uh, company. You are the leader. It's your responsibility, not your wife's, yours, to sit down and make this thing go. And if for no other reason, say, we got to make this thing go. And I'll do, and you'll do, and we'll work together and get this thing worked out as quick as we can. So it's illogical for them to say, Jesus is casting out demons by demons. Why would he be against himself? I might say this is true of a nation. And our nation is pretty split right now. And not a lot can be done with this kind of stalemates. Uh, you need to pray for our nation. And then the second thing he says, what about your exorcists? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they'll be your judges. They had evidently people who worked with mentally ill and so forth, and, and they would cast out demons and attribute some of the mental illness to demons himself. He said, what about your men? Then uh, in verse 28, he says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. If I'm casting out demons, then I'm the king. I'm wiping out the, the people who work for Satan. I'm casting out these demons. By the way, I believe that every demon Jesus cast out was sent to uh, the abyss. They were uh, no longer had any more activity. Remember when Jesus cast out the hog, the demon, the two de demoniacs of Gadara, and they went into the hogs, and the hogs, 2,000 strong, all jumped into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. They couldn't even handle the demons. And the Jews said, leave. They shouldn't have been raising hogs in the first place. But he said, leave. They'd rather have demons, the two men in Gadara, demonics, than they would having Jesus around. All right. Then he says, how can one enter a strong man's house, carry off his property, unless he first binds a strong man? Then he'll plunder the house. Before I take over, I got to whip the strong man, Satan, so I cast him out. Why else would I be casting him out? Then he says, he who, is not, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This is pretty, pretty profound. If you're not following Jesus Christ, then who are you following? 
See? You're not out there free just wandering around. If you don't follow Jesus Christ, you're a slave to Satan. And you'll go where he goes. It's as simple as that. He who is not for me is against me. Then he adds something else. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. Blasphemy is speaking evil of God. We had a Presbyterian preacher in Hutchinson when I was there who wrote in the Presbyterian Journal, he said, several things I have against Christ. Now, is he for Christ? No. And he's in a pulpit. That sin, by the way, can be forgiven him. Blaspheme against God, blaspheme against Christ can be forgiven. However, we read this, verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Wow. If someone says something blasphemous against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, in this case, they were sinning against Jesus, saying that he is doing his miracles by the Holy Spirit, right? That's how Jesus is doing. I don't remember. I better repeat my statement there. I think I said it wrong. They are saying that Jesus did his miracles by the power of Satan. Really? Jesus is doing the miracles by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. So they are attributing the miracles of Jesus to, to Satan. The Spirit to Satan. That will not be forgiven. That, in essence, is the unpardonable sin. And here's why it's unpardonable. Blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is not forgivable because the fact that the Holy, not the fact that the Holy Spirit is more holy than God the Father or God the Son, or that the Holy Spirit has some mysterious power that is not true of God the Father or God the Son. It's because of the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bring people to Christ, convince them of righteousness, judgment, and sin. And if the Holy Spirit is offended, who's going to bring that sin to their cause? He's not. That's the impartable sin. You could go a little bit step further and say this. If you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior and you die, you go to hell. There's no forgiveness for that. Right? You got to make up your mind. You got you to gotta put your faith and trust in Christ before you die. Or you'll go to hell. That's pretty simple in the Scriptures. 
So that's an ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ. But the, but the specific sin is attributing rejection of Christ is saying he's doing his miracles by Satan. God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God the Son purchases our redemption at the cross. And God the Holy Spirit brings us to the saving knowledge of Christ. That's the way it works. It's a ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring sinners to the only place where sin can be forgiven. It stands to reason that a hardened resistance to the Holy Spirit results in an ultimate rejection of Israel's Messiah and in the church age, a resistance to Christ the Lord. I personally believe in reading this scripture, there is a time when the Holy Spirit doesn't convict us anymore. I believe there's a time that you resist the gospel call to the point you couldn't trust him if you wanted to. The hearts are hardened. You remember what, G, what the prophet said to Israel? In Amos, prepare to meet your God. You know what that meant? It's over. The evangelism is over. Get ready to meet your God. Judgment is here. And you may be sitting here this morning and you say, well, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll trust God someday. Five minutes before I die, I'll trust God. Listen, today is a day of salvation. Today. First of all, you may not have tomorrow. And secondly, it may be too late. It's up, it's up to you, I guess. When the Holy Spirit is leading you and saying, you know, you need to really place your faith and trust in Christ, then you need to do it. And you need to do it today. And you need to do it now. Let's stand for prayer. and Father God, we come to you this morning. We're either for your son or against him. The kingdom issue is a real issue. Even for us in the church age, Lord. We pray and thank you that the Holy Spirit is here to take our blind, hardened hearts and soften them. And we thank you, Father, that he points out the sin of unbelief. He points out the fact that you are righteous and that we can be righteous in him. And he points out the fact there is judgment that awaits all of us. So, Father, we pray that he'll do his work and pray that the believers here will be encouraged to walk with him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.